Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt, the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference every year. Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to learn all about our CanMed 2021 event that will take place April 12th through 14th at the Pasadena Convention Center in Pasadena, California. And get your tickets today at our special early bird rate. While you're at CanMedEvents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts to stay up to date with all the news surrounding this industry-leading event. The best place to sign up for those alerts is on our podcast page, which you can find in the main menu under the media tab. You can also go there directly via cammedevents.com slash coffee talk. There's a sign up form on that page and if you complete it, you will be entered into a drawing to win two CAMMED 2021 VIP dinner tickets. On this episode, I got to speak with Dr. Marion McNabb who is the president of the Cannabis Center of Excellence and CEO of Cannabis Community Care and Research Network. Marion is a public health doctor by training and has nearly 20 years of global and domestic public health experience. Her team recently completed a veterans health and medical cannabis research study with the goal of gathering information from U.S. military veterans regarding their current health conditions, conventional medical treatments, medical cannabis use, and its effectiveness with self-reported health conditions and symptoms. We talked a lot about the veteran study, as well as other public health topics related to medical cannabis, including how military veterans use cannabis to treat a variety of conditions to reduce dependence on other medications, what barriers veterans face when trying to access medical cannabis, what programs have been established to assist veterans with the cost of cannabis medicine, How does veterans' use of medical cannabis compare to the general population? How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed cannabis use in terms of frequency, purchasing habits, and conditions? How implementing proper testing led to the eventual lift of the vape ban in Massachusetts? And how the vote to legalize adult-use cannabis in New Jersey affects the issues of public health, social justice, and advocacy in that state? But before we get to that conversation, I do want to thank this episode's sponsor, Cannabis Science and Technology. Cannabis Science and Technology is proud to present a special supplement and free virtual Veterans Day e-symposium focused on medical cannabis treatment for veterans with PTSD. The supplement and symposium will feature Dr. Marion McNabb and the data she uncovered in her 2019 Veterans Health and Medical Cannabis Study. In addition, the supplement will include articles with Dr. Stacy Gruber, veteran patient Stephen Mandiel, a VA caregiver, a nurse, and medical cannabis advocates all heavily involved with this topic. The e-symposium will also feature a special panel discussion organized by Stephen Mandiel with the group of veterans from across the country. Go to CannabisScienceTech.com to learn more. And finally, it wouldn't be the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast without the Hemp and Coffee Exchange. If you don't know, Hemp Coffee is a healthy, delicious, natural product rich in trace minerals and nutrients providing sustained energy 
without the crash of regular coffee. For more information, check out hempcoffeeexchange.com and use the promo code DRINKHEMP to get 10% off your purchase. Okay, as promised, here is my conversation with Dr. Marion McNabb. Good afternoon, Marion. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Ben. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, and I'm really interested to talk with you today because many of our guests on the podcast we've had so far and really a lot of the presenters that we have in CanMed and sort of the medical area really speak from a clinician's perspective, you know, sharing their experiences and their successes. Um, but the work that you're planning to share at CanMed is really more focused on the patient's perspective, which I'll admit, unfortunately, isn't a perspective we near we hear nearly enough at CanMed. So that's why I'm really interested to talk with you about that. Um, so I guess instead of me telling you what you're presenting on, <laughs> I want to give you the opportunity to kind of tell us and the audience about the data you've collected and what you'll be sharing at CanMed. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really uh, excited and honored to uh, be presenting next year at CanMed. Um, so what the work that we did uh, last year, I'm a public health doctor by training, so more of a population level um, uh, researcher. Um, so last year, uh, I partnered with Stephen Mandile uh, and Ann Brum of Joint Venture & Co. Uh, to, to launch the 2019 uh, Veterans Health and Medical Cannabis Study. Um, so this study was designed to um, understand from a veteran's perspective, um, using through an anonymous survey, uh, how veterans, what are the current health conditions that they face, uh, what are the current treatments um, that they um, are you know, using to address their health conditions and symptoms, and then ask further about uh, their medical cannabis use and uh, how their medical cannabis use has impacted their life uh, from a variety of perspectives. Um, so we uh, partnered uh, also together with UMass Dartmouth. The study was approved by, by their IRB. And we had about an eight-month uh, data collection period um, and captured data from 565 veterans uh, nationally. Um, but the majority of the focus of our outreach and work was in Massachusetts. So around half of our sample size is from Massachusetts. Excellent. And... What data from this survey really stood out to you? Or perhaps what information is really sort of the, the take-home message that, that folks should know about it? Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, well, one of the most uh, interesting things was to learn uh, what health conditions um, veterans were using medical cannabis most commonly for. Um, and those <clears throat> out of the reported sample, 38% uh, of veterans report uh, using medical cannabis to address chronic pain as their top health condition, followed by 25% re uh, reporting medical cannabis is helpful for PTSD, and 9% uh, reporting uh, their top condition using medical cannabis for is anxiety. Um, and so if we look at chronic pain, PTSD, and anxiety as, as some of the top conditions, uh, we do, and I will present at CanMed, some further data about uh, each of those conditions and their medical cannabis consumption. Um, but one of the most striking uh, data points um, that we found in this study 
is the amount of veterans that are using medical cannabis to reduce unwanted over-the-counter medications or prescription medications related to their health conditions. So in fact, out of our entire sample of 565, 78% report using medical cannabis to actively reduce the use of over-the-counter or prescription medications. So from a public health perspective, when you step back and look at this, um, you know, there's never been a documented um, death or lethal overdose with cannabis, um, but there has been documented, um, you know, really unwanted side effects and the possibility of overdose with a lot of the medications that veterans are commonly prescribed, um, which I think I recently read a study that uh, reviewed, I don't know, over 10,000 uh, veterans uh, records and found that often they're prescribed you know, somewhere between 40 and 50 medications. Um, so the understanding that medical cannabis is being reported by veterans as a alternative um, and actively trying to reduce the use of unwanted medications is pretty striking. Wow. And now, are there sort of barriers to veterans getting access to this cannabis medicine? Absolutely. Um, so we ask, uh, what are some of the major barriers um, for accessing and actually 51% report money to purchase products um, that they want. 41% lack access to the actual right products for their conditions. 32% uh, report uh, they don't have the money required to get a medical card. Um, followed by stigma at 30%, owning a firearm at 29%, and then workplace testing um, at 24%. So um, we also asked, you know, about how much money that veterans are spending, right? So if our top barriers are money to purchase products, access to the right products, which is market related, and then money to get a medical card. Um, when we ask how much money are you spending per month on your over-the-counter or, or prescription medications, and then how much money are you spending per month on medical cannabis? And uh, nationally, on average, veterans spend $98 a month on out-of-pocket expenses for prescription and over-the-counter meds, but they spend $343 a month on medical cannabis. Wow. So without having, you know, understanding that it's being used as an alternative, medical cannabis is not covered by insurance, yet, you know, also the majority of our veterans in our sample are getting their prescriptions mailed directly to them from the VA. So, you know, the you know, you can just really tease out, um, you know, cost is a major, a major barrier. Um, however, you know, um, so there's, you know, examples of, um, I believe in Canada, um, they're starting to provide, um, you know, free or low cost access to medical cannabis for veterans. And, you know, in Massachusetts, Stephen Mandile, who I've worked with on the study um, and events last year, he partners with dispensaries to, um, you know, share this information and to offer a uh, 40% off discount for 100% disabled veterans. So, you know, the use of this information, um, I think, is really important. That's one of the areas of, of research that I'm most engaged with is not only conducting studies and collecting data, but then how do you actually use that data for policy change or to implement programs or, um, you know, uh, you know, provide access. So, um, yeah, and I think the, the other barrier um, that I, I think is quite interesting um, <clears throat> is the owning a firearm. Right. Um, and because that's a federal uh, regulation, I think, 
you know, that's, that's also something that, you know, is unique to this population. Yeah, that one sort of jumped out to me as well, because I mean, one would assume that veterans are probably more likely to own a firearm than maybe your average citizen. But so what is it about, um, about owning a firearm that makes access to cannabis difficult? Um, and Massachusetts, I am not entirely sure about other states, but, um, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not sure how enforced this is, but you um, uh, cannot have a firearm if you are trying to get a medical card. Mm. Yeah. So one of the um, one of the other really interesting findings uh, from the study was actually so we now see that you know veterans are using medical cannabis for a variety of their health conditions. They're wanting to use it as an alternative treatment. Um, but one of the challenges specifically for veterans is that you know they um, can access private care, but they also access care through the VA. And right. because the VA is federally funded, um, you know VA clinicians are restricted. Um, from either becoming recommenders of medical cannabis, um, you know, and, uh, you know, basically don't have access to a lot of high quality education around where the state of the science is for medical cannabis. Um, so, and the reason I think this is really important is because these veterans are working to, you know, get access to an alternative treatment. And, you know, it's important for them to d discuss this with their healthcare providers. Um, and so right now policy at the VA is that, um, you know, the clinicians and the veterans are allowed to, um, you know, discuss about their medical cannabis use. They won't lose benefits and that will be recorded in their medical record. But the clinician isn't allowed to advise on, you know, types, dosages and et cetera, et cetera. Um, or even really, you know, engage with it. So we ask um, the, the veterans in our study, you know, how, how many, I mean, uh, is your VA doctor or clinical care provider aware about your medical cannabis use? And 60% said yes. And then we ask, is your VA doctor or healthcare provider uh, supportive of your cannabis use? And 59% said they don't know, indicating <laughs> it's not this clinical discussion happening. Right. Um, they've maybe informed the doctor, um, but, you know, they're not discussing, you know, they don't know if, if their clinician approves its use. You know? um, so that's, I think, also another barrier um, to really finding what the right dose, what the right, um, you know, uh, products, um, dosages, et cetera, for, for veterans uh, for medical cannabis. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And unfortunately, in my other conversations with other healthcare providers that that's not an issue that's really exclusive to veterans. Unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of citizens out there who, who feel they could benefit from medical cannabis, but there's just so few clinicians who are, who are well-educated and can really provide that guidance. Um, so that is certainly a challenge, but it was encouraging to, to hear you say that um, sort of in the absence of the VA giving benefits or, or giving um, access to medical cannabis that some of the dispensaries were stepping up and providing discounted products to them. Um, I think that's really encouraging. And I wonder, and this is probably something you've already looked into, but is there any chance that, you know, private doctors or one or cannabis doctors uh, specifically would be willing to sort of provide guidance to this population at a discounted rate or even perhaps for free? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a very um, interesting question. And I think some, some providers out there are giving uh, sometimes free discounts for a special, but, you know, for a short period of time or um, definitely discounted discounts for medical cards. Um, we actually used this study under the leadership of Steve last year. Um, we used the data from the study to advocate for a bill in the Massachusetts State House to um, mimic a program similar to what's in Illinois, where um, you know the veteran has already uh, been diagnosed with conditions by the VA, um, and to have that paperwork used as an evidence um, that would be required to get a medical card, so reducing the the need to purchase. Um, so. Uh, we did introduce that, use this data um, to support that. The bill did not go through um, this year, um, but changes will be made and um, you know, going to try in the next session. Um, but I think it's a really you know, uh, important aspect to have that medical cannabis specialist um, sort of guidance and help um, for uh, veterans. Um, I don't know anybody that is providing absolutely free ongoing services, um, but that would be great if they were. Absolutely. And I guess another thing that, that sort of stood out was you saying that so many of these veterans are, are trying to use cannabis to sort of um, either replace or help reduce the amount of other medications that they're using, but um, the cost is being, is sort of the, uh, the barrier there. So that's, it just seems so unfortunate that um, that that has to be that has to be the case because I think we all could agree that um, they would definitely benefit from uh, from reducing that. Yeah, um, and actually, I I led another study prior to this one in 2018 that looked at over 2,000. We had over 2,000 respondents. <clears throat> it was an open cannabis consumer and patient study, um, so general population. And we found very similar findings. Over 70% of people in that study of over 2,000 sample were also using cannabis to reduce prescription over-the-counter medications. Um, and I think this is just an extremely important uh, public health, you know, reality that we have to look at. Um, you know, if you're, you have a, a legal, safe, alternative um, treatment that's available, I, I think it's a public health right to make sure that that's accessible. Um, but the other interesting parts in the veteran study and in the consumer study that, that we ran um, is that they also report reducing the use of alcohol and tobacco much less now with the use of cannabis. So if you think about this, it's like almost a harm reduction method for a variety of substances that, you know, are uh, more lethal. Um, so, you know, it's not only medications, uh, it's medications, tobacco, alcohol, um, in addition to both physical and psychological, uh, relief. So, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up that, that survey. Cause I was looking at that data as well. And really one of the things that jumped out to me and it seemed to be uh, almost the same percentage on the, on the veterans study too, was that 80% of the respondents said that using cannabis just generally helps their quality of life, yeah. which, um, and that was sort of the top response for, you know, sort of how cannabis impacts their daily lives. And it seems to, um, to ring true with what you just said, you know, if, if you're using cannabis and you're just generally feeling better that you're probably less likely to, to be resorting to some of those, 
destructive behaviors. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Or finding, you know, it's a, it's a better alternative. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and so I wondered, were there any other kind of interesting correlations or maybe even some interesting differences sort of comparing the, the data from the veteran survey to the sort of more open study? Yeah. So the consumer and patient study, um, uh, and the veteran study, I think one of the differences is in the top conditions. Um, so in the veteran study, um, more veterans express, you know, report having PTSD. Um, and, uh, so I think, you know, that's one major difference. We see similarities in, you know, like we just talked about, um, in, uh, the medication reduction, um, you know, and there's, and I think, you know, differences a little bit in, in smoke, uh, in, uh, preferred methods and preferred time of day. Um, interestingly, we have, you know, I think these populations also, um, in the veteran study, we had about half or over half, um, of the respondents were over the age of 65. Um, if I've got that right, let me just check on myself. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a pretty, um, like a substantially older population versus what we had in our other studies. So, um, but you know, you give me the idea, I want to dig in further and really try and, um, tease out those differences. Maybe I'll write a blog and I'll make sure to send it to everybody who's listening. Yeah, that'd be great. And be happy to share it with the audience. And, um, if you do publish it before this, uh, this episode goes live, I'd be happy to put it in the show notes. So people have a, a quick way to get to it. Awesome. Um, one of the things that stood out to me and you, you sort of touched on it there, um, was that it, I think this was at least in the um, the more open study that 54% of respondents said that smoking flour was their primary method of consuming cannabis. And then there was another question that sort of asked for their preferred method where they could select multiple different ones. And still smoking flour was, um, was the top choice at 79%. And maybe it's just because I'm more in the industry and aware of all the different types of cannabis products that are out there, whether it be vapes or edibles or tinctures or patches, um, that it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, smoking flour is still so such a dominant, um, preferred method. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, is that sort of just because it's sort of the easiest one to access or the most, uh, widely known one. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so in, in both of these studies, um, they, you know, we focused heavily on the Massachusetts market, although they were national, it was convenient sampling approach and uh, anybody nationally could take the study, uh, but we did targeted outreach in Massachusetts. And I think it might be because of the nature of um, the industry at that time and, you know, the availability of products um and not having as many now you know uh that we do have now or could have in the future or even the diversity of products in other markets outside of massachusetts i think is much greater than than what's available here so maybe it's a, a factor of that product availability um because we see that you know access to the right products was one of the barriers for the veterans study um, mm. so maybe they want vapes and edibles and you know it's too far away or only one um you know, dispensary offers it or that kind of stuff. Um, I also think it's probably also, you know, uh, it's just a very common, you know, people are traditionally very used to smoking flour and, 
Um, if people are new into cannabis now, um, I think it can be intimidating to do some of the other methods of administration, you know, um, maybe they're unfamiliar, maybe needs to be more patient education around that. So people gravitate towards, you know, simple flower, you know, I know that, you know, when I walked into the dispensary the first time I, you know, I'm a consumer, I'm a patient and, but I was intimidated to ask questions and this and that, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, it's, uh, probably access, you know, availability in the market, um, awareness about how to consume those other methods, um, comfortability in consuming those other types, you know, et cetera. Yeah. And maybe one thing that sort of struck me as, as you were answering there is, could there perhaps be a correlation between the method of administration and sort of the, um, the symptoms that they're looking to allevi- alleviate? Exactly. I think that's a great point, you know, um, like whether or not you're using a tincture or an RSO or a flower. I mean, you know, all of those by, by condition, I think people definitely probably, if they're, you know, very committed to learning how to dial in their dosage and everything that they need, you know, um, what's interesting too is so, um, you know, we've run these two studies, the open consumer and then the veterans health. And earlier this year, Together with UMass, Dartmouth launched the COVID-19 Medical Cannabis and uh, Consumer Study that I'm running right now. Um, And so we launched that study and we have uh, several partners in Massachusetts and um, uh, really looking at the impact of COVID-19 on uh, patients and consumers. So again, you know, what are they consuming for what health condition or symptom, uh, how much and how has this changed during covid Um, and I'm just trying to pull up the data now, but, um, you know, speaking of, you know, cannabis consumption methods, um, let's see, let me, let me find it here. Um, we did ask has, you know, because of COVID, have you, um, you know, switched, has your cannabis use changed basically? Uh, interestingly, uh, that 14% said that they switched their preferred method for consuming cannabis. Um, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, and 47% stated that they consume cannabis more now since COVID-19 started. Uh, and only 11% say they consume cannabis less now. So yeah, people are consuming more cannabis. Um, they're also reporting, you know, uh, using cannabis uh, for top health conditions differently than the other studies. Um, I think now we're living in an environment of COVID, which is heightened anxiety, um, also just heightened um, risk for people who have underlying health conditions like medical cannabis patients. Um, You know, so I think, you know, medical cannabis patients are, are I think, should be considered a vulnerable population right now um, within the epidemic um, or the pandemic. So, um, yeah, I uh, and they're also still reporting in our COVID-19 study uh, replacing the use of alcohol or prescription medications uh, with the use of cannabis. Wow, so that's interesting. Um, what other questions are you are you asking as part of this this survey? So uh, we asked, how has COVID nineteen impacted your purchasing habits? Um, and about forty percent um, report that it has. Um, one couldn't access legal recreational cannabis. Now, fourteen uh, percent reported now since COVID, they purchase cannabis in the illicit market or unregulated mm-hmm. market. 
Uh, 12% now only order for curbside pickup. 10% reported they got a, they registered to get a medical cannabis card. Um, and that's, you know, quite interesting. Um, the other uh, questions that we ask are, you know, the top health conditions, et cetera, but what are the barriers, again, to purchasing, uh, to accessing cannabis, uh, both pre and post COVID and um, access to the right products is the top barrier. And that's increased since COVID started. And then money to obtain cannabis products has also increased uh, since COVID started. Um, very interesting. Uh, stigma has decreased as a barrier. Place to consume cannabis has decreased as a barrier. Um, money required to get a medical card decreased as a barrier. Um, and so did a uh, lack of healthcare provider involvement. Um, wow. uh, yeah, uh, really interesting. Yeah. And so what is that compared to? Um, is that compared to the, the study that you did in 2018 or? Uh, we asked in the survey pre-COVID, what were your barriers? And post-COVID, what are your barriers? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And to rate their top barriers. Um, very interesting. Um, we also ask about COVID infection. Um, 8% of the respondents reported they were infected with COVID and received the results. 11% uh, respondents uh, think they have COVID, but they can't access a test. And 13% report they have current symptoms of COVID. Hmm. So all of this is very interesting um, because of the emerging evidence around cannabis, CBD, terpenes, cannabinoid profiles that are coming out right now um, from a variety of research institutions related to the impact of cannabis on COVID right, um, by interrupting the cytokine storm at the end stage, um, or, you know, different researchers are looking at uh, either THC or CBD or a combination of different, again, cannabinoids and terpenes, and how they may actually be a uh, possible prevention measure. Um, so it's quite interesting uh, data that's coming out of, you know, Israel and Canada and South Carolina and Georgia and other other universities, um, University of Miami. Um, so as part of this uh, study, we've actually, I'm, I'm organizing an event uh, to be held in December um, around COVID and cannabis and where's the research and standing at that point. And then also from a clinical perspective uh, to really lead an engaging uh, virtual event um, that will I've invited several several of these researchers to present some of their preliminary findings, uh, some clinicians, and then we'll have a nice uh, discussion at the end about the state of the evidence around this and and kind of what's what's the latest. That sounds excellent, and um, I don't want to invite ourselves, but I know that some of the uh, the folks on our team here have uh, been looking into to COVID and cannabis more on the testing side to, to make sure that we have sort of a, a testing assay um, to me measure if there's any, any COVID on cannabis products uh, to sort of protect consumer safety. Um, I will, I will say we've, we've seen no evidence of that in the marketplace that that's out there. Um, and the main reason that our, our CSO Kevin McKernan felt it important to, uh, to create this test was, more so because um, one, of the, one of the encouraging signs of the pandemic was that in many states, um, they deemed cannabis to be 
essential, mm-hmm. um, which I think we can all agree was the right move to make. But one of the concerns that we had here was that if, for whatever reason, there ever was COVID found on cannabis, that that would completely shut down the supply chain and you know, so many of these patients wouldn't have access to their medicine. So in order to prevent that, we wanted to make sure that there was a test available that should, should that become an issue that the testing labs could run to make sure that, you know, medical cannabis is still, is still functioning. Um, so thankfully we had, thankfully there really hasn't been a need for that, but it's something that we felt very strongly about. And, um, like I said, I know that <laughs> if you gave him the chance that Kevin would be more than happy to, uh, to take part in your event. Yeah, if you'd have. I would love it. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I, you know, thank you all for that because that would have been a disaster to say, you know, uh, could have really shut down, uh, uh, yeah. And put, you know, patients at risk. So thank you guys for leading that work. And definitely I would love Kevin to be part of this event. Yeah. And speaking of sort of, um, maybe there being a ban that, that took medicine away from patients. I know that when I was doing my research on on the many things that you're involved in, that you were involved in sort of advocating here in Massachusetts to lift the vape ban that had been uh, that had been implemented after um, there was that the vape scare where a lot of people were, were getting sick there. Uh, so I was wondering if if you'd like to speak a bit about that since it seems like a nice segue. Yeah, yeah. So um, last year uh, there was sweeping cases of a valley um, going across uh, the United States. Um, so the, you know, sort of uh, issues around um, potentially contaminated products or a really just a lack of understanding about what was causing a valley. Um, and Governor Baker took very swift action to um, ban vapes in Massachusetts. Um, I had looked at this issue in terms of, I just scientifically started to look from an epidemiological perspective, where were the cases, where they'd be reporting, you know, is this coming from tobacco vapes or is this coming from, uh, THC vapes? Um, and just tried to start to dig into whatever I could find online. Um, and really, you know, uh, at that time also very quickly, uh, MCR labs put together the vitamin E acetate test. Um, to start testing products. So we actually worked together on the, um, you know, trying to figure out the science of this um, from the different perspectives. Um, so they, they put together um, that. I started to look into, you know, like I said, what be my potential causes. I actually reached out to my father as well. He's an international infectious disease epidemiologist. Um, and, you know, I thought it was uh, a little premature for to have such swift action uh, without a little bit more further testing, which only took a little bit of time to do, but it really hurt the industry and really hurt medical patients that rely on vapes. Um, so um, yeah, we put together a press conference um, around this, uh, invited uh, Dr. Peter Grinspoon, uh, Commissioner Shelley Title, uh, different experts to give their opinions on, on the vape ban. Um, and so that we've got that recording. Um, and then, um, yeah, did, did advocacy around that. They eventually lifted it. Um, and then, you know, now since we understand that, um, Massachusetts, um, you know, I think it was a a premature, uh, intervention. Um, some studies that have come out later have, have documented that it had really no impact on, on Valley cases. Um, so, uh, I think I was... Yeah, that was a that was an interesting time and an interesting time for the industry, and I think it took a really big hit for 
patient access um, and just for the industry at large. Yeah. And again, just another example of how sort of the knee jerk reaction can be just to, to ban and um, how, you know, that unfortunately is sort of a blunt instrument. That's not always the best one to use. And as you demonstrated, having good testing techniques uh, to ensure patient safety um, is really the way to go rather than just kind of do a wholesale ban. Absolutely. So thank you for your, your work on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we ran a quick survey of that as well, because, you know, me and studies. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we did find that, I mean, people, when they're when they don't have access to things, you know, they're and you can't just cut them off with a ban. You know what I mean? Um, so people did. They'll start searching products on the unregulated market that are not tested and that are not necessarily fully safe. Uh, driving across borders to get things, you know, um, saw that also probably when when adult use was deemed non-essential in Massachusetts um, with COVID, um, right? You know, so I mean, in our study, you know, people like we said, I've, I I said that you know some people have now since COVID had to seek their products on the unregulated market. I'm going to look at that over time since I'm going to look at the timestamp of when uh, adult use was banned. In Massachusetts and that data versus now when it's uh, back open and see if there's numbers change. But. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. So I know we're getting towards the end here, and I did want to give you an opportunity that I know in addition to the work that you're doing in terms of um, doing surveys and sort of larger scale studies, um, that you also do a lot of work in terms of advocacy and social justice. So I wanted to kind of get an update and see if there's any any new things that you're working on that you'd like to share with the audience. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, long-running advocate for uh, social justice and, um, and uh, addressing the, the failed drug war uh, through effective programming, education, uh, access, et cetera. Um, last year, we uh, were a state-approved uh, social equity training vendor for the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission, uh, so taught nine courses um, in Massachusetts. And this year, uh, quite excited to partner with Ryder University and my colleague, Dr. Sarah Trocchio, uh, who's a professor in criminal justice uh, at Ryder. Uh, she's leading a course, and I'm one of three mentors in the course that's focused on New Jersey and focused on New Jersey legalization and the vote that's coming up and social equity in New Jersey. Um, so we are uh, the students are grouped into three um, consulting groups, one focused on public health, one focused on social justice, and one focused on advocacy. And the students are actually running their own research study um, that's approved with the writer IRB as part of their learning methods. Um, and so it's open right now. So if you know anybody in New Jersey, um, please take the survey. Uh, it'll help the students um, basically asking opinions about legalization and uh, social justice in the, in the state. And the students will be analyzing this data and producing a report um, that would provide recommendations for future commissions or advocates uh, or others in the state uh, around those topics of legalization and social justice. Uh, so we are trying to make this a very actionable uh, study. Uh, it's very quick data collection. So before November 3rd, if anybody is a New Jersey resident, we encourage you to take, take the survey and um, we'll be having a virtual event um, on December 2 at 3 p.m. where the students will present the findings and we'll have various um, 
advocates and experts from New Jersey also participating in the virtual event. Wow, that's great. Um, and if you send over the links, I'd be happy to put that in the show notes so people can quickly get to that um, if they're able to take the survey or definitely sign up for that event. And I think that's uh, very appropriate you looking into New Jersey because I know that a lot of folks in the industry here, especially us on the East Coast, are very interested to see what happens in New Jersey. It would be only the second state in the Northeast to really go full adult use. And I think the general consensus is if if New Jersey goes legal, pretty much everyone else is going to follow. So that is definitely going to be a big vote that we're all paying attention to in November, As a, in addition to another pretty big one that's going to be happening in November. Um, so I guess just finishing up here, I did want to give you a chance to let everyone know about the different organizations that you're involved in um, and plug those websites, social media, anything like that. Uh, now's your, now's your opportunity. Awesome. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. Um, so I'm the president of cannabis center of excellence. Uh, it's a 501 C three nonprofit aimed at uh, improving access to research, education, social justice in the cannabis industry. Uh, you can find us at www.cannacenterofexcellence.org. And we're on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and LinkedIn. Um, so you can find me at Marion at cannacenterofexcellence.org. Um, always open to collaborations, ideas, uh, innovations, um, trying to bring the best foot forward in the cannabis industry. So thank you, Ben, for the time and, and for having me on the podcast today. Thank you, Marion. Uh, we look forward to seeing you out in Pasadena. And um, I think that'll be a great opportunity for you to connect with those innovators and collaborators. So we're looking forward to it. Me as well. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. McNabb. Marion was kind enough to send along all the links we mentioned in the interview, which I've added to the show description on our blog, so please do check those out. And thanks again to Cannabis Science and Technology for sponsoring this week's episode. I hope you will sign up for their Veterans Day e-symposium to learn more about how cannabis is being used to care for our military veterans. Again, you can go to CannabisScienceTech.com to learn more about that event. Coincidentally enough, our next episode of the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast will drop on Veterans Day, November 11th. In the meantime, please go to canmedevents.com slash coffee talk and sign up for email updates. That will enter you into that drawing to win two tickets to our CanMed 2021 VIP dinner and keep you up to date on all things CanMed 2021. Give us a follow on social media too. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, if you're listening via a podcast app, you can subscribe to our feed so that new episodes automatically download to your device. And if you do like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to come back for the next episode of CanMed Coffee Talk.